I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. is going. I can feel it. I can feel it. My mind is going. there and welcome to Pivotal Film. I am Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio and this is episode 26, the last of the third quarter of the Pivotal Film (laughs) countdown. We are entering the final 15 minutes. Aaron Rodgers is preparing that final drive. Is that Aaron Rodgers? Somebody somebody that does good in the final drive. Drew Brees? Eli Manning. Drew Brees is out there hating protesters and talking about American flags like some idiot he is. Yeah. And then saying like, oh, yeah, now I get it. Oh, the message <laughs> yeah. the message hasn't changed at all, but I totally understand now. Just like the NFL. Just yeah. like the NFL is like, oh, we were wrong. Yeah, we said that to you a long, long time ago, NFL. We, we were just now we stand to lose. Now we stand to lose significant amount of money from this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to... Now we care. <sighs> These things, they, yeah, it's never. It always feels good to like shred these people to pieces, and then also kind of like exhausting that we have to keep shredding these people to pieces. Um, yeah, especially yeah. since our word means nothing because they're multimillionaires, and we are sitting here drinking our double IPAs, Tom. Yeah, just drinking yeah. our double IPAs. America. Um, I just, I, I want to start today, Mario, by giving a quick. I suppose appreciation um, of some kind or other to the Bethel Cinema in Bethel, Connecticut. I found out this week that it is closing. Um, It is a movie, a very small movie theater uh, where I have seen, uh, I've had a lot of great viewing experiences, including uh, list film number 45, Night of Cups. But most recently I saw uh, High Life there, Claire Denise High Life. I saw First Reformed there. I saw pain and glory there um so it was definitely it was one of the places that i could it had wednesday morning movies uh it was one of the places that i could kind of reliably count on to get some of the more difficult or obscure things uh that came out in our culture and now it is gone and it is all covid19 related uh because they you know they had to close for three months and apparently after three months of being closed they're like yeah we just can't afford to be doing this forever I heard uh, they're there's there's they're trying to sell it possibly. So yeah, I mean, so we could buy it, but I think for all intents and purposes, it's closed as of right yeah. now. Which is just it just is a bummer. And they're not like an AMC like theater, so um, I care about them. Although I, yeah, you know, it's so a small independent. All the AMCs can close. I don't care. You know, they can eat shit and you know put their tenants on and whatever. But the small ones well, besides- are the ones I'm going to be sad about. 
besides the people out of work. And hopefully those people would have found jobs in other small theaters. Yeah, or they can work in the they can work in the same theater when Amazon owns it. Well, I guess the Bethel Theater, where you should offer a toast, as one is wont to do. Indeed. Um, and today we're drinking from Counterweight, uh, because in this COVID-19 era, we have a very limited amount of breweries we can go to, and it is Crucial Mass, their double IPA, which is pretty widely distributed right now, mm-hmm. um, at least in New Haven. Uh, you went to the brewery to actually get a uh, yep. growler, so Curb. we'll be doing a can versus growler. Are filling taste here. Yep. Ready? Air dink it. I think it's fine. I kind of I mean, like my, it. My ultimate. I think it's a little too sweet for me. Um, yep. And its body is kind of flat. Not flat. I don't want to say flat. That sounds wrong. Its body isn't as full as I want it to be. Its mouth feels kind of turgid. Um, turgid mouthfeel. Um, I don't know if that's the word I'm looking for, mm-hmm. but uh, <laughs> I don't know if turgid is ever the word anybody is looking for to describe anything. Um, no, it's weird. I kind of like it. I mean, I think it's. I think the it, it is. It's sweet. It's kind of fruity. Definitely some citrus stuff going on. It's very cloudy. I don't know if you could see that. And that's a cloudy beer. Um, it is cloudy. That's very hazy. But it's pretty. I mean. I it's pretty good. I think it's, and it doesn't really feel like a double, but I don't, I think we're kind of entering some kind of weird double vortex where doubles now taste like singles and single, like regular IPAs taste like Bud Lights. Sessions. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what's happening. Eventually bourbons. We'll just be downing burp, like pints of bourbon. Tom. Yeah. Those will be the next step in pivotal film. Those will either be really long shows or really short shows. Well, if the 35 Shots of Rum episode, uh, the Claire Denis episode's any indication, <laughs> they'll be long. Yes. All right. They will be very long. Well, those are always fun, then. Uh, for today, we only have one film to talk about, Tom. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's, there's several films that came out this past week. <laughs> one of them from your Twitter review of it seems as though it was rough um, Artemis Fowl. rough is kind of an understatement Mario I just want to reiterate to our viewers to not watch Artemis Fowl even if you've read I'm all st- the books or whatever it is uh, atrocious in every single way a movie can be bad so you know there you go I still I still have a slight curiosity for it but I I may be well, it doesn't even make any sense. So you're going to watch it. You'll watch it for 10 minutes and be like, wait, what? And then you'll hope that what? things get clarified and then it never will get clarified. They spend the whole no. they spend the whole movie hiding the villain's face. And we, like, we talked through the whole thing. Like, I wonder who it's going to be. Who's going to be the villain? No, they never reveal it because of the, se- <laughs> well, the because of the sequel. The sequel that's 100% coming. Yeah. Uh, but no, the film that we are talking about today is not King of Staten Island. It is the newest Spike Lee film released on Netflix this past Friday, June 12th, The Five Bloods. Black G.I., is it fair to serve more than the white Americans that sent you here? Nothing is more confused 
and to be ordered into a war to die without the faintest idea of what's going on. I dedicate this next record to the Soul Brothers of the 1st Infantry Divisions. Be safe. Welcome back to Vietnam. Look what I found. You're the man in all his glory. Who was that guy? That brother was the best damn soldier that ever lived. The Five Bloods follows four African-American veterans who returned to Vietnam after 50 years to retrieve the remains of Norman, their squad leader, as well as a cache of gold. Uh, that had crash-landed in a CIA plane that was a payment to the South Vietnamese. The four men, all kind of albatrossed by their own personal demons and prejudices, uh, descend into the jungle where they face a number of obstacles and foes in their both internal and external. They are also joined by David, uh, played coming back, Jonathan Majors coming back uh, from his last black man in San Francisco fame, mm-hmm. uh, who plays Paul, uh, plays David, Paul, the son of Paul, Delroy Lindo. Um, Tom, personally, for me, this is a mixed bag. It's a mixed bag review. Yeah. I find first and foremost, Delroy Lindo's performance in this to be a scenario. It's an incredibly forceful delight of a performance and the supporting cast is also incredibly strong and and, and i I feel as though a lot of what spike lee is doing here thematically works in a lot of ways it is ultimately for me though hamstrung by spike lee's stylistic choices his needs to do callbacks to some classic films such as treasure sierra madre uh, Apocalypse Now, and ultimately Heart of Darkness, um, and some of his stylistic needs in uh, the sequences um, that flash back to the Vietnam War. There's also um, ultimately what I feel some questionable uh, portrayals of the Vietnamese people that How in so? some ways that I, well, well, I, I think we'll, we'll kind of, I kind of want to get to that to finish um, that distract from me, but in terms of a thematic experience, it works. In terms of its performances, it works. Has a film, uh, as a craftsman film, uh, it, it falls apart for me in a lot of ways. Yeah, I um, I think it's th- this is my turn now. Yes. Gene? <laughs> yeah. We're, we're, we're trying a, a, a new format, I guess. Um, it's funny. I agree 100% on the performances. I, I agree on the Delroy Lindo. Um, I think it's kind of amazing. I, I texted you, um, you know, within a minute of Delroy Lindo getting on the screen when they were passing around a picture of Chadwick Boseman as Storm and Norman when he kind of gets choked up looking at it. It was one of the most uh, authentic, like, uh, performances I've seen in a, in a very weird and, you know, complicated year. Um, 
that I was like he he's he won the, he should have won the Oscar already for that like for that one scene and it just gets better and better and better and better and better and better as the movie goes on. It's amazing. Uh, you know, Jonathan Majors, Majors, who you mentioned before, is equally amazing. I I feel like I've been reading a lot about this movie. And I feel like people tend to hold Spike Lee to different standards than we hold other directors. I don't. I don't really know why, and I don't necessarily think it's. Um, I don't know why. I found this movie like one hundred percent exhilarating. I don't know if it's because I thought a lot about this, and I don't know if it's because I'm not an action movie guy. So I think the fact that he's kind of like. <sighs> I think the fact that he's using all those old Hollywood tropes is. Um, I think it's for something and I found it and I suppose we could talk about that and uh, I just found it amazing and thrilling and when it was sad it was really sad when it was exciting it was like uh, it was thrilling when it was like emotional it was it was I got you know it was very emotional um, and yeah so that's that, that's my 30 second that's my 30 second Ponzio and Nolan at the movies review. <laughs> um, so yeah, doing a deep dive, I, I guess first and foremost, just, just picking back off of, of the performances. I hesitate to find outside of John Renault's two dimensional villain. Um, I hesitate to find a performance. I don't find anything sh- short of, of absolutely captivating and compelling. Mm-hmm. Um, even some of the more two dimensional of the group, uh, such as, you know, Norm Lewis's Eddie or Isaiah Whitlock's uh, Melvin have an ability to display a certain amount of dimensionality to their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, what it comes though to, you know, your main three leads in Clark Peters, his Otis, Jonathan Majors and Delroy Lindo, they're just doing so much phenomenal work. And, yeah. you know, Delroy Lindo starts that film already amped up to, an eight, I guess, as it were, in terms of his emotional unstability, um, has that ultimately coalesces when he travels out alone into the woods into his Ooh. Colonel Kurtz moment, um, and has a lot of those uh, kind of callbacks to Humphrey Bogart, you know, trancing through the jungle and Treasure of the Sierra Madre. He he just absolutely takes command of everything. Um, we talked about this on. Uh, through through text and some of those decisions that Spike Lee do, does that work especially well for Delroy Lindo's performance. And I think that Spike Lee is a phenomenal director of actors and there's a phenomenal blocker and, and, and captivating creator of actors is he employs a technique that he has employed in the past, but really to the nth degree here in terms of that kind of Jonathan Demi-esque fourth wall breaking or, um, you know, we talked about this with, with a dryer and Ordet. Um, in terms of, you know, has Paul's kind of descending into the jungle, descending into his own madness and guilt over um, his accidental killing of Norman that we come to discover. Uh, he starts out looking side off to the camera and eventually he's fully committed to, to the camera. And it's it's this almost um, stunning display kind of of breaking breaking the fourth wall has a synonym for his descending sort of madness that ultimately coalesces in that kind of like great screaming performance that put, you know, Clint Eastwood and Gran Torino to shame. Um, 
<laughs> you know, very similar to that kind of like scream yeah. in in defiance um, when he's ultimately executed in bearing his own grave. And so, so that that really works for me. Um, what 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 I think does does cause faults though is I feel as though the employment of those tropes is ultimately to the film's failing. Why? Um, the reason I say this is because there are so many, and, and I don't, I, I hold everyone to these standards. Um, I'm not necessarily so saying you in this film. No, no, I know. But every time so I just, I, I just feel as I just want to like interject here. I'm talking about the fact yeah, that I'm interested I'm interested to see who you, who you talking well, like everyone about, I'm reading, yeah. every, like they have to mention, and I mentioned it to Nicolette when I, or my wife and I was watching it because I love it. Like how they ended it with um, Clark Peters and um, Tien just kind of doing that like classic Spike Lee push in, like where they're moving down the hallway on the, on the dolly. You know what I mean? Like, and everyone's like, oh, he's all the negative reviews. Like, oh, he's doing this again. He's doing this again. He's doing this again. Yeah. Great directors do the thing they do and that they want to do. They do it however much they want to do it. You know what I mean? And we, we, we let other directors do it, but we don't let Spike Lee do it. It's just like a weird thing. And I, I absolutely agree. There is, um, one of for me like that is a profoundly great shot. You know, talking to the camera is another kind of Spike Lee, you know, artifice almost that he's done in the past that works well here. And the thing that I think works great too is that kind of backwards tracking shot when they're at Apocalypse Now, the bar and just kind of dancing. That's mm-hmm. a, oh, like highlighted by oh, Red. That's fantastic. That's also a Spike. That's also a Spike yeah. Lee thing. Got to get it the works. dancing in. The tropes that don't work for me are, and I assume that these are kind of a playoff of the comments they make early on in the film, when you know they've made, they've gone dancing and they talk about you know miss like Chuck Norris is missing in action yeah. or Rambo is there's a lot of tropes that end up coming into play later on, um, such as the convenient finding of the gold, uh, the conversation of uh, um, the first African American. Uh, who would get the Medal of Honor? Uh-huh. Um, Oliver. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, Olive. Olive. Uh, uh, Milton yeah. Olives. Yeah, Milton Olive, and and Milton makes the line of you know I'll never I'd never jump on a grenade. A grenade for any, and you yeah. kind of see that and go like he's going to jump on a grenade, or uh, the in entire introduction of the gun and David saying, I've never fired a gun and the gun being placed next to him and him ultimately using the gun in the end, the um, Chekhov's landmine of introducing the lamb group and, you know, the slow, and I think that's actually the one time where it works, uh, you know, Milton kind of walking around with the metal detector and you're just waiting for the metal tech, the landmine to go off, which it eventually does and kills Eddie. Um, I think that's the one time where it works. But a lot of times these tropes that are kind of redone for this film, I think, are a feeling to it because it distracts from the narrative for me. It, it, it makes it so I'm waiting for that next kind of trope cliche to come into play. And I do understand that's intentional. I, I don't think that anything in this film is a failing of spike lee's intent i think it just doesn't work for me in terms of carrying me next to the narrative it doesn't work for me in terms of keeping me engaged with the film intentionality or not it 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 works to kind of disengage me because i ultimately go like i know this is coming 
I'm just waiting for that next. I'm waiting for the trope to be fulfilled. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's hard to kind of argue preferences. Um, I found that exact thing kind of fun. And I think it added to the, to the, to the fun of the movie. Um, especially when that, like, cause the treasure of the Sierra Madre thing is kind of, it's present in the beginning when she's like, when Chen sends like gold changes people. Um, you know, you have, you have, and it's that, heavily present. It's heavily present. One of the Vietnam Vietnamese gangster says, we don't need those stinking badges. But that <laughs> to me, that's the thing. I think the difference between this movie and, and like a traditional Vietnam movie, and it really kind of bugged me every time I would read and then even read like, well, he made a black Vietnam movie, or, you know, or the, this movie is about black soldiers in Vietnam because it really isn't about black soldiers in Vietnam. It's about black people of a certain generation who defined themselves by, by, a thing. You know what I mean? They define themselves by walking mm. across the bridge with, with Martin Luther King. They define themselves with being at this rally by uh, being near the stage for this thing, by being at Vietnam. When in reality, um, not even in reality, it's that those things color their the overall experience more so than that be like the single experience. So if everything is colored, that means all of these little trope things get kind of, they're going to inherently get mixed in. I mean, I loved like the fact that they didn't even bother to de-age them when they were going back in time, because it's not like a true, like the aspect ratio changing, I think is proof that it's, he's not intending it to be like a true expression of the past, even though I can't, I don't think we can think of anything as a lie. It's that it's filtered through the lens of these guys who have, um, and I think this is I think this is bared out with the fact that Delroy Lindo, but by, by the fact that Paul is really trying to bury something, um, bury an aspect of it. It's it's this is kind of borne out there. This is all, it's all so like it's all very subjective, and your subjective viewpoint is going to be clouded by all of these things. You know what I mean? That you know the idea that Vietnam was not apocalypse now for them even though they're you know they're there's ride of the valkyries plays when they're just kind of floating casually down the river on their little on on the boat um or like treasure of the ceremony like you said but i also think there's like a callback here to um i think uh hanoi hannah is a callback to um do the right thing or to any of the djs and any of his things you know what i mean it's the idea of the black experience includes includes all of these different things, but you can't, I think, and this is where Paul's character comes into play is that you can't just, you can't get bogged down. The nature of the black experience is that you can't just get bogged down in the one thing. You can't get bogged down in the, in the jungles of Vietnam because, you know, bloods don't die. They multiply. This stuff's got to go out. It's got to go somewhere besides like just inside, because if it just, just goes just inside, then you end up like Paul, like, and that's why I love, I don't even see it necessarily as breaking the fourth wall, those shots, because he's clearly not talking to anybody, but he's not even talking no. to us. He's talking to himself. The camera just has to be, happens to be like right in front of him and he just happens to be looking at it, but he is not necessarily like, I don't think looking at anything. He's looking inside of himself and it's fucking genius. And I think that's, I, I really got, I got off on that, on, on all of those kind of like drop-ins and stuff like that, because he's not just, 
he's not just dropping them in like willy nilly. It's all it's all about. It's all about how these pe- everything exists in like a weird continuum, um, and maybe it's because I'm thinking about my 26 too when I'm thinking about that stuff. Um, but I think that's where I think that's where all those those tropes and things come in. And to that point, like I kind of kept waiting to be bothered by like the generic action moviness of like the last hour, but I was like, this movie is more fun and better and means more than like almost every action movie I've ever seen. And they all get to get away with like plots that are totally meaningless and like weird conveniences and like people just mowing down like hundreds of people and stuff like that. And like nobody cares and there's no consequences for anything. Um, I think that's part of this too. I think Spike Lee is kind of testing people to kind of say what, I want to get away with something that like other people have been able to get like white directors have been able to get away with for like 40 years. And I think the kind of, I think the reaction to this movie has generally been like, well, you can't, you still can't, you have to make the 25th hour or we're going to say it's got problems. You know what I mean? Like, I think that's just the weird place we're in. I guess that's, that's my quasi uh, hesitancy with some of its portrayal of, of Vietnamese people is, um, it does feel very mired in kind of the eighties belief of either Vietnamese as victims or Vietnamese as holding on to the grudge of, of Vietnam. Like there's that ask that scene when they're on the river right yeah. before the ride of the Valkyries moment where the one says like, you killed, you know, my father or grandfather yeah. and his mother and everything. He wants to buy um, the chicken. And, you know, also portraying like a, uh, a landmine victim kind of like strolling into a popular nightclub to beg for change. Like it's, it, it's, it's really sort of very two dimensional portrayals of Vietnamese people. Yeah. And I understand, I understand, I think that that's intentional because I do think the intent is in a lot of ways to make a, a nuanced review of the kind of decrepit ways in which black soldiers were treated and try to like treated like father in, um, you know, any number of wars. And then creating this kind of film that has representation in terms of being a Vietnam tale. Like, you know, they, they mentioned if there was one in the early on, if there was one black um, actor kind of betraying in a Vietnam role, I'd be the first one to buy a ticket. My issue with that comes in the fact that I think Spike Lee has the nuance to not kind of fall back into the tropes of, of portraying the Vietnamese people in that way, like those films would do. And that's what kind of, that would be my issue with that is I, I kind of wish she had not taken that very simplistic view of it, despite the intent being sort of this um, blood and sinew war movie on, on, on the layer, on the surface level. I wish she hadn't done that. I, I think that is Well, what's two dimensional, what's two dimensional about the kid with the, with the crutch? Because I think that's kind of, like that these things have lasting impact and, and you know um, that the war, like we think the war is over and these four veterans can just kind of go marching into Vietnam and pretend like, Oh, it's like old times, blah, blah, blah. But in reality, like this war keeps taking things from people both on, on both sides of, of, of the conflict. 
Well, I think I think the idea is is more that it's presented as the Vietnamese people haven't had the ability to grow from it. Like there's there's really no well, representation that's... of the Vietnamese. I, I, that's why I, that's a well, few, I, that's but, what it comes off. But I think you don't see that everyone every Vietnamese character is still tied so inherently to the American war in this. See, but I don't know if that's I I I see that I suppose in the one guy, in the chicken guy, um, I suppose that could have been a little less a little more nuanced but i think people like tian are kind of examples of the fact that you can come out of this like she has that great kind of speech where she says you know i was um i don't remember the terms that she used but she you know she talks about being a prostitute and now she's like an international like exporter of of goods and she's very wealthy and i think i think uh, uh, problematically maybe that she's tied to um that she's tied to Otis by they like they have a child together, but I also think the conversations that she has with her, like I'm your mother, you came like you came out of me. She raised her, like the I I think it's more holding Otis accountable than it is showing like the Vietnamese as being particularly um, one dimensional. You know what I mean? And I think I think it's I think I don't know if it's and I I think like the little militia that kind of like, that comes at the end. Um, is less I think that's probably maybe where it gets a little less nuanced also. Um, yeah, that's that's more like Tien's Tien's not a, a badly Tien's Tien's at least a, a a dimensioned character. I think it's the issues of like the, the gangsters at the end are some of the the side characters, um like the chicken seller or uh the kid, um the, the crippled kid, um the disabled kid who who you know sets off Paul's um, PTSD. Those are the ones that I think kind of lack lack the nuance that that that's that's needed in this. Yeah, like this. I'm not 100 percent sure. I necessarily agree with or you. In 2020, I don't know. I, I necessarily um, I don't like agree or disagree. I think I just I see it. I I see those things differently. Again, and I I, I suppose Spike Lee's fault is that he decided to kind of make like a political movie instead of like just a straight up action movie. Cause if it was just an action movie, he could portray nationalities and, you know, he could make six underground and portray nationalities in any way he wished. And people would be like, the action scenes are awesome. You know what I mean? But he's not, he's making a political movie. So we have to kind of, you know, um, we, we, we hold it in a different esteem. Um, and you have you have something like Delroy Lindo's like complete disintegration. So you have the I mean just you have those two characters who are delivering these um in in David and Paul who are delivering these just um bravura performances. Um and not in like a bad way either, not in like a scenery chewing way, but in just like deep in a way that I don't think a lot of performances have been in, in um in a while. Um Maybe even since like Ethan Hawke and first reformed, um, and it's kind of it, so it, it elevates it beyond. It gets elevated by all these different things beyond like just a mere action movie, um, and I suppose that's. I just yeah. I don't know. I love. I I thought it was great. Um, it's. I I think easily like the, my favorite movie I've seen this year so far. And again, I haven't seen like a ton of movies. Um, but I am again. But this made me think of the Oscars too. So they're going to move the Oscars back till fucking April, which means and they have the eligibility period got extended to February. 
it's hard not to see like, you know, or infer some kind of weird anti Spike Lee sentiment in that because this is a Netflix movie that came out in June. Like, you know, Netflix is going to have to spend twice this movie's budget to keep Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo in like the popular consciousness through all of the shit that's going to come out in the next like six to seven, six, to seven months. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure given the nature of the beast, Netflix will have forgotten about it in favor of Mank or, um, you know, George Clooney's Midnight Sky by December. But that's what I'm saying. So we're going to see, we're going to, we're going to see, we're going to see it and it sucks. And I'm actually just kind of sick of this shit. Um, I'm sick of the conversation. Well, that's, that's why the pivotal film awards are the most important awards of the year. <laughs> yeah, they are. They are. I mean, they always make me feel better for an hour and then, you know, something, ha- and then no, a, yeah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What about the Fuck other the two? Actors. What about the other two hours of those episodes? Yeah. <laughs> it makes you feel better for an hour. No, Those episodes I, are three hours long. Like huh? no, afterwards, I'm like, oh, we did the good work. We're fighting the good fight. And then I talked hey, to some people, and then I talked to someone that I've known for like, you know, the whole time I've been doing this podcast. Who I've told like a lot of times we do a podcast. Like you do a podcast, and I'm just like, don't even worry about it, buddy. Just <laughs> forget I mentioned it. Uh, hey, there are people who 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 hold our opinion in some regard. So that's all that matters. That is all that matters. But I, I, they, I, I, they, for some, they, for some reason, hold a strong hatred for writers of star Wars films. <laughs> Imagine if that's who like that person in Tennessee was, they're just someone who really <laughs> like has a deep grudge against Lawrence, Lawrence Kasdan. And it yeah. makes them so happy to hear us just beat up on him. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so I guess that that kind of settles it for the five bloods and our, um, I believe, required seasonal trouncing of the Oscars. I believe that is a requirement at least every two months that we shit on the Oscars. Well, you know what's fucking sucks, Mario, is that I'm I'm kind of I'm really sick of listening. I'm sick of listening to these weirdo corrective Spike League conversations, not from us, from other people. Uh, but I'm also kind of sick of of. People talking about the movie industry, like it, like matters so much. If I could hear one more person say that, like, film festivals are where, you know, and however true it is, I don't fucking care about film festivals. I've been stuck in my house for four months because a hundred thousand people in America fucking died. I don't care if can gets to happen. Who fucking cares? It's enough. Or I don't care if Christopher Nolan's sad that his. Tenant movie doesn't get to you know play in theaters for as long as he wants. Fuck him. Who gives a shit? I don't understand how this works. I mean, Emma Thomas cares, and I was bummed because <laughs> Emma Thomas probably does care. I was bummed because I would have loved to have seen the Five Bloods in theaters. Um, I would have definitely seen it. It probably would have played in North Haven too. It would have would have seen it on like a really big screen. But I'm just happy I got to see it, and it doesn't like take away from the quality of the film because. I saw it on my TV. I don't know. The one thing, one thing I do want to ask about Five Bloods. Do you think its intention was always to be a smaller budgeted film? I know it's Mike, it's Spike Lee's biggest budgeted film. Do we always think it was meant to be like a forty-five million dollar project? Um, like, do we think that they gave him that money, or do you think Spike Lee only wanted that much, only needed that much? Um, I don't know. I don't know how he would have made it different if he had more money. 
because there's definitely like some of the I, like the CGI blood and the CGI muzzle flashes are slightly distracting, but it's hard to suggest whether or not that's intentional. Well, that's the thing. So it's Spike Lee, so it could be yeah. totally intentional because he just doesn't give a shit about it. I mean, the fact that he hired yeah, exactly. the fact that he hired Newton Thomas Siegel to like shoot this movie shows he wasn't going for like which is Brian Singer's cinematographer. Um, shows he wasn't trying to necessarily rewrite like how war movies are made. He just wanted someone that shot competent action sequences. You know what I mean? So I can't imagine the sets were going to be like the sets for those action sequences were going to be much bigger. It's still a pretty, uh, it's still a pretty small movie, all things considered. Oh no, the set. I will say the set design remind me of of Sniper. In, in a lot of ways, I'd be like, oh, that's that same scene I've seen like before. Mario, I will go. I will go you one better. The set design in this reminded me of another Delroy Lindo classic, and they might have even maybe they hauled them over there. It looked very Congo-y to me. Especially, oh, that's, especially, that's fair. especially the last set when the, you know the with the with the gunfight with Jean, Fat Jean Reno. That uh, yeah, that was very Congo-y. Impressively, I thought John Renault was like I thought he looked terrible for his age. He's seventy. I did oh. not realize he was that old. I mean, I thought it was he's allowed. To, he's allowed to look that. He's allowed to look that way at seventy. Yeah. Let me just ha- we. So it's funny because we skipped a lot of things here. What do you make of the the Delroy Lindo Trump stuff? Do you think it was? Do you think it worked? I think it worked really well. I mean, I think the hat I think it passed around was kind of um, was an interesting conceit, but I kind of liked it. It was kind of funny. You know what I mean? I think they, I think foreign people seeing that were kind of, you know, the fact that they had like a, a, a nice visceral reaction to it. I thought it really worked, and I thought it was, I thought it was fairly genuine. Yeah, no, I, I think it works, and it especially works to, 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 to the character of Paul himself as somebody who's already unhinged, already kind of looking for external villains that when he himself is his own villain, but also having like a slight bit of self-hatred yeah. in himself. Yep. I think all that works towards, I, I see the entire MAGA hat wearing side of him to be just a reflection of his own self-hatred and yeah. his own yeah, yeah. Um, frustration with himself. I think, it, I think that works. Okay. Well. Yeah. I thought, and it leads I, to the great, it leads to the great president bone spurs yeah. uh, title card. <laughs> like Nixon gets to actually show a Nixon thing, but we get president bone spurs. They just didn't want to say his name. All right. Um, I guess we'll be right back with our 26s. Yeah. Tom, imagine it's 1993, and you're not 10, 11. How old were you back then? 11. But imagine you're six years old. And imagine at that time you're pretty precocious and and very enamored with with two actresses okay you're enamored with julie warner <laughs> that makes sense <laughs> from because you saw doc hollywood and yeah you saw i was gonna that say river, you saw that river scene in doc hollywood i was gonna say doc hollywood and also man you had seen so i married an axe murderer we're on the same page mario so actually this is 94 so you had seen So I Married an Axe Murderer as well, and you had seen Greedy, that Michael J. Fox, Kurt Douglas movie, and you have a huge crush on Nancy Travis. That's so like, funny. an impossibly huge crush on Nancy Travis. I get it. I had forgotten how big 
think of a crush I had on Nancy Travis until I did this this podcast. Completely ruined by her eventual starring in um that show. The Tim Allen show? Tim Allen. You know who yeah, my I don't know what that show's called. My, What's that show called? Um Last Man Standing. Is this, yeah, that's how much I hate that show. My cr- I forgot my, that they existed. My crush was Francis O'Connor. When I was like 10, 11, 12. Oh, Francis, remind me who she is. She's from, um, she was in Mansfield Park. She was in, um, she was the woman that Brendan Fraser liked in uh, Bedazzled, the Elizabeth Hurley, Brendan Fraser movie. She was the mom in AI. Oh, okay. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. She's like British, right? Is she British? Yeah, she's British, yeah. Okay, yeah. I never had a thing for her, really, but I, I get it. I get it. But so, these particular actresses starring at that time. And so I, I came to see a trailer for the 1993 thriller film, The Vanishing. And I was also kind of enthralled by this, too, because at this time, I'd really liked The Fisher King and Starman. Oh, yeah. As a small kid, and, and I saw that Jeff Bridges was in it. That's it. That's all you needed. I begged, I begged my parents to rent this movie when it first came out on video, and I think this is like, I think this actually comes out on video late '93. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I get it like in '94 after it's been out on video for a while, and I watch it, and for some reason, it digs into me. It really <laughs> digs in. And have you ever seen the Vanishing remake, Tom, the '93 version? No, I watched a couple of clips. Because it's just one of those things when you're always, this is this has happened, you know, I mean, a bunch of times um, where someone makes a movie and then they make an American version of that. The same director makes an American version of that movie like three, four, five years later. And I've always found it very fascinating. So I definitely watched some clips and I decided against watching the, the whole movie. But imagine you're my age at seven and you think it's the best thing ever. Okay. You think it's the coolest thing ever. Because you had seen some of these, you had been really attached to thriller films and to horror films, and it's so interesting that the re, you know the, the remake of The Vanishing opens up with Jeff Bridges' uh, core forming himself and, and and going about his routine of how he's going to kidnap a girl, and the mo- your movie centers not on the hero, mm-hmm. not on the Kiefer Sutherland character, his lost girlfriend Sandra Bullock, but you focus in on the villain. And I coupled with the fact that Nancy Travis is all throughout this movie. So that was a real positive for me. Uh, That coupled with just this really weird, goofy Jeff Bridges performance where he has this really accented like tone to his voice that he, he's just doing a whole lot with his hair. Uh Uh-huh. For a seven-year-old boy, this is the craziest thing in the world. And you watch it, and you keep watching it, and you get obsessed with it, and you love it. <laughs> Eventually, you get a little older. You come a little more refined with your the films that you see. You watch the originals of the remakes you loved. So this is around – I'm getting into college – you know, as a kid uh, and as a, as a young teenager, I loved the 2002 Christopher Nolan Insomnia. 
and I watched the 97 Swedish version by Scholzer Barger, whatever his name is. <laughs> um, sorry, guy. And, you know, you got, I got to say, I, I looked at that and I was like, the 2000, like Nolan's Insomnia, a much better film. You, you love as a kid, the 93, I think it is, or maybe 91 Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. And he watched the Browning Dracula from 31 and the Jesus Franco 1970 Dracula, Christopher Lee, or even the Franklin Jello Dracula. And you go, you know what? No, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula is better. You watch the 1962 Kate Fear starring the great Robert Mitchum by J. Lee Thompson, because you love the Martin Scorsese Kate Fear from 91. And you go, and I go, nope, 91 Kate Fear is better. And I got, I got it in my gut as a young college kid that re just always pretended to like the originals better because they were, they came first. Mm. You know, I had seen the thing and I knew the thing was objectively better. I knew John Carpenter did better work than, you know, the thing from another world. Cause it was a completely different movie. <laughs> you know, I even liked, I even like the 198 has flawed and gross and scary and, and, and grotesque and different has the 1988 uh, blob is from the Steve McQueen version. I was like, that one's better. You know, the annals of time will ultimately mean that a remake is better. And then I saw the 1988 vanishing. From George uh, Solinzer. And I realized, oh, nope, sometimes the original is a better film. And that's why my number 26 is the 1988 <clears throat> Danish French production, Sporlos, <laughs> or <laughs> as it is known in America, The Vanishing. Je m'appelle Raymond Lemorne. Je suis sociopathe et claustrophobe. Je n'ai jamais trompé ma femme. Ah. Gabi, le carbouchon, s'il te plaît, dans le tiroir. Ah Mais je m'empresse de vous dire que pour moi, le pire, ce n'est pas tué. I don't know. I think we should call it Spurlos here also. <laughs> Rex and Saskia are a young couple out on a biking trip in France. They have a bunch of struggles in their relationship. Rex is having real issues with commitment and Saskia has <clears throat> her own issues with kind of detachment and 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 loneliness and she has this this dream of a golden egg where she's drifting out alone and she has this dream where she sees another egg collide into her and she thinks it's going to signify the end of something they eventually have a big fight after their car runs out of gasoline in a crowded dark tunnel and after resolving that they make a pledge to one another that you know they'll never abandon one another and they bury these coins in the base of a tree that to signify their love for one another. Almost immediately after that, Saskia's disappears 
at this gas station. And very quickly, we find out that she was taken by Raymond, this wealthy sociopath who has a really well-maintained family life, who is a sociopath not so much in his psychopathy or his absolute lack of consciousness, but so much more so in his vague curiosity. He sees himself as this ultimate purveyor of free will. He has a young child decided to jump off the ledge because he's told himself, I would never do this, and yet he did. And one day, years later, he commits an act of ultimate altruism and saves a girl from drowning, and he decides that the only way he could truly find out if he's truly a good man is to commit ultimate evil. And he does so by, when Rex isn't noticing, kidnapping Saskia and taking off with her. And for three years, Rex obsesses over finding out what happened to his, um, as we find out, wife, but he says wife in the subtitles. Yeah. But they say girlfriend later on. Yeah. So I don't know if it's I noticed that also. a mistranslation. In the remake, it ends up being girlfriend. So I'm just going to assume girlfriend. Uh-huh. Well, cause he calls because he her... that follows story beats better. And they say friend. Friend, yeah. In, in the, in the final um, newspapers. Uh, but Rex, um, you know, three years later, is still obsessing over it. He has a new girlfriend, Lienke, who's, you know, kind of forlorn with this and, and, and in love with Rex, but also you know, realizes Rex still caught in his obsession because Rex keeps receiving postcards to meet at this cafe. And because Raymond is toying with him. And eventually Raymond decides that he's going to go up to Rex and tell him, I will give you the ability to find out what happened to Saskia if you follow exactly what I say and do. And Rex does. They go off on a long trip where Raymond offers him some cut up sandwiches pretty polite of them cut off the <laughs> crust though and in the remake tomatoes are on the side which i thought you know jeff bridges character uh in the remake is a little more polite of a guy they say tomatoes like, are on the side he doesn't but barney offers tomatoes on the side so like he's a little bit better of a dude and eventually they get they, they kind of have this journey where they're, they're talking with one another and um uh eventually raymond offers him the last step is to drink this cup of coffee and if he, he will, you know, pass out like he did, like Saskia did years before, because that's the last step needed to figure out what happened to Saskia and, and, and to, to, you know, put that internal unknowing because that's the worst thing that could happen to a person is not killing somebody, but the internal unknowing and Rex decides like Raymond has so many times before that I would not drink this. So of course I'll drink it. Rex takes a drink of the cup and passes out and wakes up to find himself buried alive. And our film ends with Raymond back with his family and a newspaper reporting on now the disappearance of Rex and Saskia. Uh, this prequel, or the, sorry, the remake doesn't end there, Tom. No, I know. In the remake, I, read, I read about that. Yeah. In the remake, what happens is Rita, Nancy Travis, oh, Nancy Travis, she's followed and gone back home and realized that Barney has, you know, taken Jeff away 
Barney is Jeff Bridges and Jeff is, is Keith or selling, taking them away. And they've done the plot of the film and Rita follows them. She pretends to have kidnapped Jeff Bridges, daughter. She gets back to the house. She attacks Jeff Bridges. She then makes Jeff Bridges take the drink himself. And while she's doing that, she goes and unburies um, Kiefer Sutherland. There's a decent fight. There's like a decent length fight scene. And then uh, Jeff, um, Jeff uh, Kiefer Sutherland de- almost decapitates Jeff Bridges' character with a shovel. Wow. And the movie ends with them talking to a book agent about a book about their uh, hardships. And then they're offered two cups of coffee and they go, oh, we don't drink coffee anymore. (laughs) Terrific. That's the end of the remake. And so so in the Siskel and Ebert review that I showed you before this podcast started, Uh Ebert called the remake a travesty. Yeah. And I don't still necessarily know if I agree with that. I come back to the remake and I still have a good time with it because it's just nostalgia at this point. Yeah, yeah. It's just a big old nostalgia cupcake. <laughs> but this was the first time I'd ever seen an original movie and realized that by just shifting things around, by just having different performances, by, you know, I don't even necessarily think the ending really changes it for me, but the intent of everything makes it such a different film. Mm-hmm. In the original, there is this, callous humor to Raymond, you know, to, to, to Bernard Pierre uh, Donadu's performance. That, that's this kind of absence. He's so matter of a fact in his sociopath. Whereas Jeff Bridges as Barney is very much a character. He's very much a creation. And at the same time, Je- Kiefer Sutherland's Jeff and Sandra Bullock's Diane, who Sandra Bullock is fucking awful in the remake. She's <laughs> miserable in the remake. Their relationship lacks the necessary amount of, of guilt that you see in the original. Mm. Rex is kind of a piece of shit in the original, and you get, get to see that. Like, there's a real, especially with that 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 egg conversation, and, and you see that Saskia kind of has a dependency issue, but you, you, it, and there's there's this kind of underlying fear with that character. You don't know if it's like a mental health thing, but you know that there's a real need that that Rex is just very dismissive of, mm-hmm. and Rex is he's a real dick of a man to her, and she's maybe a little too needy. But there's a real in those first ten minutes of the, of the 98, 1888 vanishing, there's a real connection there. There's a real reason raison d'etre, as it were, for Rex to become obsessive. Whereas in the remake, that's gone. It's just kind of like a relationship and then she kind of disappears. They have a little bit of a fight and she disappears. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why is Keith Sutherland so obsessive about this? <laughs> because he has 24 hours to do it? I don't know. Um, that's a dumb joke. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but there, there's a real... There's a real sense, not necessarily of stakes, but of purpose. You know, and Ebert, I mean, sorry, Siskel, in his criticism of the remake and the original, says there's too much quirkiness and too much deliberation and, and, and too many leaps of logic 
in the in the the character motivations. Mm-hmm. But I think that this the original, watching the original in comparison to the remake, there's everything lines up so much better in the original. Everything that I made leaps of logic from in the remake for years because I loved the remake as a kid and I still came back to it, but I had to make these tremendous leaps in logic about why they were doing these things. All of that lined up perfectly for me in mm-hmm. the original. It filled in all of those gaps. And for me, it opened up this doorway to where I realized like, oh, yeah, sometimes, and here it's only a five years separating it, but sometimes you just don't need to fix a wheel just because yeah. it's in a different language or just because it's in a different <laughs> era or just because of whatever reason, you know, mm-hmm. like I felt insomnia's Nolan's insomnia improved on the failings and the mistakes of the original. I felt as though Cape fear ramped up the tension and delivered a bit of nuance to caddy, the max caddy's character. I feel that Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula has a bit more Zaz and over-the-top sort of um, carniness that Dracula needs. Mm-hmm. But this made me realize that, hey, sometimes you just need to stick with what worked. Yeah, You just need to just keep it going. And I think that's kind of informed my views later on. Of It's made me critical of, of remakes, especially in this time now where I think some remakes are coming out that don't necessarily need to exist. And I'm not talking about your, your very expected bad post like modern remakes, like your total recalls uh, or your RoboCop remakes. I'm talking more of let me in over let the right one in uh-huh. or Haneke deciding to redo funny games in English. You know, you, you see, shared scenes scenes that are basically completely lifted from the original yet there's a loss in translation it is it is a it is a failing of a photocopy that mm. that was emotional intent especially and i think this is especially true with the 93 vanishing and would then be true with the 2007 funny games is when you're recreating art that had been in your head for the second time into a produced medium, it doesn't have the fever to it. It doesn't have the inherency to it that the original does because you're just doing it again. Yeah. And this film, although I wouldn't say, you know, even though the the 93 remake was such a big part in getting me on that thriller train, and maybe it was a little more pivotal to Mario in general, the original is a much better film and made me a much more careful close viewer of film mm. and the reason for ask and asking the reasons why a film need even exist yeah i mean it's interesting the idea of a careful close viewing is interesting kind of i think speaks to why it's here but i also think in regards to this movie specifically the original uh rewards a careful close viewing it actually almost requires a careful close viewing while i'm assuming based on the clips i saw and based on you're talking about it a careful close viewing of the 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 remake is not gonna you know it's a you're just gonna be carefully or closely watching a movie that kind of 
has a lot of flaws. And by watching and it carefully and closely, yeah, by watching it carefully and closely, you're going to be finding more of its flaws than you are going to be finding kind of, um, you know, interesting little secrets and, and, and subtleties and things that the original has. I really, I mean, I thought the thing that I found interesting about Siskel's, because you played me the the clip of the uh, the Siskel and Ebert review. The interesting thing about Siskel's review is that he was he criticized how mundane it was and how it never seemed to rise above the mundane. And I think this is kind of um, indicative of a lot of of Siskel's reviews, uh, where Ebert was really willing to allow a movie to kind of take some flights of fancy um, or was allowed to, to was allowed to suggest some underlying things while Siskel really seemed to want to want to always see stuff um, so aesthetically I can see why he would say that this movie uh, never rose above the mundane but for me I kind of like the fact that it never rose above the mundane I can't I kept waiting for a, a shot or um, a sequence to really kind of blow my blow my socks off, you know, until the ending. Uh, and it never really happened. And as the movie went on, I kind of liked that it never really happened. I kind of liked well, that we I got think... to sit with, we got to sit with these two characters and specifically Raymond, um, who the, you know, he, who turns, you know, to be the movie's kind of protagonist in a way. Um, kind of is. towards he the is. middle Absolutely. of the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I got in. I really got into the idea that it, it, the his reasons for doing this were more philosophical than they were malevolent. He wanted to test the boundaries of fate. He wouldn't do that to somebody, so he felt like he must. Um, which I guess could be, you know, from a sociopathy standpoint, could be a justification for doing psychopathic behavior. But I think in the hands of um, Bernard Pierre Donadu, I think it actually really works. I think it works really, really well. And I didn't, I wasn't like chilled to the bone by this criminal mastermind. Um, but I, I was compelled by him. I found it a compelling watch from beginning to end. I actually found him much more believable than I, I found his motivation much more believable than Rex's motivation. But I think that's a failing. Not failing. We say this word a lot now. I think that's um, a criticism, maybe of the script, maybe a little bit of the director, in the sense that Rex kind of disappears for a chunk of the movie, um, where Raymond is always kind of there. You know what I mean? Like when after the tunnel scene, when um, uh, Sasuke, Saskia and Rex are driving into town, they show Raymond just sitting there, and you're just like, "Well, this guy's got to be something." He's putting on a fake sling. He's putting on a fake cast. He's putting some kind of bottle in his fake cast. He's not nobody. We assume at some point when Sasuke disappears that that guy that put on a fake cast and a fake sling and a bottle of something into that cast is going to probably be responsible for something. Uh, so I think it's odd. I think it's questionable, I think, that Rex just disappears. Um, but I really I really enjoyed it. I, I liked it a lot. And that's and actually that's like that's some of the things I could say, and when I say a careful viewing too, that works both ways. Is I think there's some shifting that occurs in the remake that works better in terms that would have worked better in the original, um, and maybe we made the original a little stronger of a film, uh, in the sense that in the remake, that testing of the 
uh, chloroform on himself uh-huh. and that initial kind of like setup of how he's going to do like the abduction, like the pantomiming, the abduction, all that happens in the very beginning of the remake. Like you're introduced to Barney before you even see Jeff and, and Diane. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the original opens up on who should be our hero and victim, whereas the remake kind of spends like 11 minutes on your villain to start. Mm-hmm. It kind of shows like the a new of going through the, the, the motions with it. And I think like has a storytelling device that works better and would have even worked better in the original. So it, it's, it's interesting to kind of see like how there is some better taken steps narratively in the remake, you know, and, and that's why I don't think it makes like a remakes often like when you call them abject failures. Cause I think there's always something that new visions of a film might do, even if it's just shifting gears that work better, unless you're Gus Van Zant and psycho. Um, <laughs> but you know, and that that works. But the thing I, I agree with you on that is, uh, and about Siskel saying it never rises the the mundane is uh, Mark Kermode talked about or Kermod or whatever talked about this, um, where he said the thing that makes this movie so great is it's like, and that hurts the remake is that the original is about the banality of evil, whereas the remake ends up being kind of like the evil of banality. Yeah. But like the banality of evil is kind of a big thing because it is such everything is so by the numbers it's paid by numbers it's it's it is you know raymond is a chemist and everything he does is just experiments and thought and this is all like committing murder is to him is a thought experiment done again you know it doesn't mean anything to him it's just Mm. it's something he does to see if he can do it well but i also think it's i think when he i think that's true but i also think that when he talks about kind of deceiving fate or going against fate. I don't know if there can be, if I can consider that necessarily banal. You know what I mean? So that I think there's like, there's a truth to the phrase, but I think the way that, um, what's his, what did he say? Sluzer? I don't know how to pronounce the director's last name. We just watched Roger yeah, Ebert say it and I, I didn't, I didn't catch it. Um, the way that he's kind of presented him is that it's not, it's not necessarily banal. It seems maybe banal to us because of the minutia that he goes, like, you know, uh, huffing the chloroform and, and, and looking at his watch to check his pulse and writing some stuff down and, and, and taking the time to kind of experiment with, with picking, up a, picking up a woman, you know what I mean, and seeing what that does to him and how, like, trying to get himself calm. I suppose all that on the surface is banal, but on the – we already know that we can assume – or no, I guess depending on how carefully you're watching it, that everything he's doing is going to lead to the to the abduction of Saskia. So there's nothing really banal about any of that stuff. You know what I mean? And even if he, even if his mannerisms uh, uh, suggest the banal, it's it, it. I don't think he feels that way. I don't think he feels because if they were just banal, he wouldn't go through these. Like he wouldn't go through these steps. You know what I mean? He wouldn't go through all of these stages oh, to oh, make no. sure he's doing it right. I guess I more mean like the the way it's presented to the viewer. Yeah, I, and I think that that's I think that is true. But I think I think that's why um, maybe a more uh, it's it's much more a much bah, 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 bah. I think that's why it's considered a much more sophisticated movie than the remake because it's 
very it's it's showing a, a level of subtlety that it doesn't seem like the remake is capable of. Um, it's funny that I, you mentioned funny games, and I think we had this conversation when we made this when we kind of started doing the thing. I thought funny games was for sure going to be a movie that showed up on your list in some capacity because we've had many conversations about funny games. I think the difference between this and something like funny games is that, or even Gus Van Zandt's Psycho, is that this, I'm assuming based on what you're telling me, is that uh, Sluzer uh, reimagined the nature of his movie where Michael Haneke just cast different people to perform essentially the same movie, but in a different context, but that context only being the nation where the movie takes place. Yeah. There, and kind of reframing all, discussions. That Sluze... Go ahead. There's actually been discussions uh, and it's never been kind of really clarified that Suzanne wanted to change the ending. Like his intent, he had originally wrote in the Dutch version of this film, the ending that you see in the American version. Oh, really? Of, of them escaping, but never went with it. Um, so there is actually some discussions about whether he had intended on having the original ending from in the American version or wanted that happy ending. I, I think, I don't know. Ultimately, I think both. I think both endings work for their own ways. Hmm. I think they they change the I, I'm not as critical of the remake's ending. I think this film works has a the remake works in a lot of ways for me has a very cliche thriller told in a unique way. Like you're going to get from A to B and there's going to be no surprises there, but the ways in which you get there are different. You know, starting out with your villain and staying focused on your villain remind me really similar to to what would happen a few years later in a really critically acclaimed movie you know and a, a significantly significantly better film that we talked about before in the line of duty um you know yeah. but it, it's a, a slight subversion of it it's a slight subversion of a common told tale and i think the remake at least kind of still works on that level so i'm not as critical of how it ends um, it's better than something like Striking Distance, which I don't know why, but Striking Distance, <laughs> this movie and the Vanishing remake and Striking Distance all, are always really similar to me in, in the ways like I, I, I paired them up. Um, but in compare, like, comparis, comparing the Vanishing remake to the slew of those films of that ilk you got in the early to mid-90s, it's still, I think, a better film. I think a lot of the reasons the Vanishing remake is so derided is because it just follows this film up, which, you know, which the original beyond the fact that it's telling a, a fairly unique narrative structure has that very surprising ending. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I do think we, we, we deride the remake more than it needs to be. And I, I, that's why I think is interesting is, is the fact that it does feel there, there's so many moments that are reproductions of the original in, in the remake, you know, like you'd see with Haneke or like you see with Guns Van Zandt or like you see with any sort of remake, but there's enough differences to where it feels like he's still playing with his toy. Well, it's funny because this is not a thing. I think this is a unique problem to film because in music, 
you don't really have this problem. You get people like Bob Dylan who rewrite their songs literally every time they go out on the road and everyone's like, oh, cool. He wrote, rewrote like a Rolling Stone. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, it's cool to hear this new version of like a Rolling Stone when I go to see him in concert. Or, you know, you do a, a musician does a cover song and they, and they kind of do it differently. Or artists even kind of, you know, painters and what have you, visual artists kind of rip off other mediums and in sampling with music too they rip off other mediums or they rip off other artists and they kind of do a you know a play on a play on that art you know what i mean like we both have been to, that, we both been to the yale is gallery. that always true i think so because i mean it, maybe it's more true of like of modern art but i actually think it's probably true of 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 throughout time and stuff like that i think a lot of them a lot of composers probably heard what others composers were doing in this in the you know what whatever I think, they were... I think of like i think of like the man i love like the like you compare the george gershwin miles davis and billy holiday version like they're all vehemently different tellings sure like sure sure song. but that's what i'm saying is that but nobody has a problem with it everyone's kind of okay with oh, the idea I that they're gonna saying. do it i see what you're saying and even like it you know uh one of the the picture one of the pieces i love to go look at at the Yale Art Gallery is in you know the modern art section. It's that portrait of George Washington with all that gold shit just like hanging off of his face. I mean, I'm sure you've seen that thing. Um, it's yes. on the other side of the Rothkos. You know, it's this classic painting of George Washington. There's you know, if you go to a different part of the gallery, there's a a portrait of George Washington that looks vaguely similar to it, but they've just like fucked it up and it brings this totally new message to it. In movies, it's kind of weird. It's kind of frowned upon to do the remake. You know what I mean? It's not. It's not looked at. It's not looked at kindly, and I'm not 100 percent sure. Unless why. it's Father of the Bride. Yeah. Well, why? Who remade Father of the Bride? Well, I meant like Father of the Bride. It was a remake of uh, what? Some movie from like the 30s or 40s. Oh, I okay. I didn't know that. Like Cheaper by the Dozen or Freaky Friday. We can remake sure, those sure. movies, and people love it. Um. Yeah, we just watched Freaky Friday. Um. I don't know. It's weird, but I I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. Like I'd rather watch the Dutch funny games than the American funny games. Is it because I'm not a big super Tim Roth or Michael Pitt or Naomi Watts fan? Maybe, but I also think there's something more honest in the the anger seems more real. It seems less satirical. Um, maybe it's easier to watch because the anger seems less. The anger seems more real. You know what I mean? It doesn't have this kind of, you know, uh, sticking. Uh, what's the word? Not insouciance, but like, uh, like the effect of a satire. You know what I mean? You know, he's he's trying to he's trying to prove a point in in the American funny games, whereas I think in the Dutch funny games, it's just a conceit. It's just an idea. And I, you can watch an idea where in the American funny games, he seems to be making a commentary. Like, he seems to be uh, trying to establish a commentary on like American values or something like that. I don't know. Um, that's how I saw What's it. What's your opinion of like other, like, why? I think like, I always go back to Cape Fear because I, I really prefer the 90, I really think the 91 remake is a significantly better film than the 62 version. I've always found the 91 remake very overmade. Like I found really? Robert De Niro's uh, Max Cady to be very, like over the top and un—I I don't know. De Niro hit that weird period in like after Goodfellas where he was just acting the shit out of stuff. Um, 
I think because he spent a lot of time. When was the mission? Uh, when was the mission? 89? I, I feel like he spent a lot of time in from like Deer Hunter to the mission. You know, Deer Hunter. 86. So Deer, okay. Deer Hunter, the mission, um, Goodfellas even. Even though Goodfellas is, is kind of is in that, you know, Delroy Lindo camp that we mentioned before. It's just really intense. It's also very understated. You know what I mean? It's it's uh, Jimmy is not like a he's not an ostentatious guy. His paranoia kind of leads him to to fall into the background a little bit. He does a lot of muttering. He does a kind of he does a lot of you know he's twisting on the inside. I found his Max Katie to be really off putting and way over the top. And I found the whole movie to be kind of way over the top. Um, I don't. I don't know. I maybe I should go back and watch Super. it. I just think it's like a horror movie villain. I suppose so, and that's a, maybe my reaction to it is that like I'm not necessarily like a horror movie guy. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, 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 I know you love I know you love Juliette Lewis back then though. Like, well, you were a fan yeah. of the young Juliette Lewis. <laughs> that was a big vacation. Well, I mean, those '90s Nick Nolte performances are are like classic Nick Nolte. Blue chips almost ended up on my on my list somewhere. I bet blue chips is in the uh, blue chips is in the top two hundred. I've seen blue chips too many times for it to be not in the top two hundred on my on my on my pivotal film list. Um, but yeah, I mean, as long as you wouldn't put something like "I Love Trouble" on there, then we're fine. No, there's no "I Love Trouble." "I Love Trouble" was a movie of abject hatred. Rom- if we have an anti-pivotal film. "Romancing the Stone" might be on there. Are we okay with that? I'm okay with Romance in the Stone. I love, I love Trouble. I hated I Love Trouble as a kid. <laughs> I don't think I saw I Love Trouble like as a um, a person who felt compelled to watch I Love Trouble like all the way through. Um, I Love Trouble is the reason why in college I made an anti-Julie Roberts song in my comedy rock band. <laughs> you know what? I mean... I suppose to my benefit, I've never been a Julia Roberts person. I've always avoided Julia Roberts thing. I think if I was going to make a journalism, if I was going to, if we were going to rank 90s journalism romantic comedy movies, I think One Fine Day might be on my list way before I Love Trouble. That Harrison Ford movie. Uh, what's the name of that Harrison Ford movie? Harrison Ford journalism movie? Yeah, he's like a news reporter. I'm not familiar with that. All right. We're doing it, Mario. I bet you. I bet you thought this is gonna go where this is gonna be where your vanishing conversation went. Morning glory, no. It's not morning glory. glory, yeah. Uh, okay, that's like later on. Okay, got it. Really quickly about vanishing, though. One thing I found interesting in my research. Did you know this is in Peter Cowie's top ten from Criterion? Um, no. Peter Cowie, the the film historian who wrote like the critical biography of Igmar Bergman. I so believe his top it. ten includes like. Nakahiri's Crazed Fruit, Wajah's Ashes and Diamonds, Ozu's Tokyo Story, Melvin's uh, Babla Flubler, Flambeur, uh, Carnet's Children of Paradise, Haxon, Discreet uh, Charm of the Bourgeoisie, La Ventura, and The Seventh Seal, and The Vanishing. I always found that. I find that interesting. I can't find, I can't find any of his thoughts on it. Like why it's there besides Here's, like his little blurb about minimalism, but it's it's an interesting film 
to be in Peter Cowley's top. If I had to be honest with you, if I had to guess why that would be, based on all the other movies that he put, I mean, he put fucking Haxon in his top 10 list. Haxon. Um, I would say that though it's 1988 and though its soundtrack is so 80s, it is the 80s <laughs> soundtrack. Um, and and terrible and almost kind of like detracts from the movie. I'm I was I was shocked in in some cases how on the nose 80s noir it decided to be. Um it's it's from a, for a movie that's 1988 it's almost like a piece of classicist art house cinema. You know what I mean? It really especially with the ending. It really kind of goes to that like you just mentioned minimalism. It goes to that minimalist understated but sophisticated and elegant style of filmmaking which is odd because uh Sluz- doesn't make a lot of it's not like he makes a run of great movies you know what i mean yeah he's he's doesn't become like a great director he becomes a guy who directed a bunch of other movies and this one great movie i will say this tim crabbe who wrote golden egg that the book is based on uh-huh uh, the, you know, the vanishing is based on is he wrote a 1970s book called The Writer about bicycle race. One of the best books about bicycle racing, like huh. ever. Did you read it? Yeah, no, I, I've read it. It's, I went through that phase of reading about um, long bicycle races and ultra marathons, and it was up there. It's up there with um, what I think, what I talk about when I talk about running by uh, Haruki Murakami. Oh, yeah, Haruki Murakami. Cool. But yeah, no, you're right. He doesn't. He he doesn't go on to become the great director. It's like this is a weird shot in the dark for him. Yeah, well, and I think that's probably why, like, um, someone would put this movie on a list with all those other movies because it's an outlier. It, but it also works on the same level as a lot of those classic movies. This is very Hitchcockian in a lot of ways, um, but has a lot of modern, has a lot of modern touches to it which allows you to it appreciate like, it while also seeming like you're appreciating like a Hitchcock movie. It feels like a Haneke film to me, to be honest. Like, I think that's maybe where I responded to is I saw it like in the depth of the Haneke films. Yeah. And this felt like the most like approachable without being completely devoid of all hope and life <laughs> that Haneke leaves you with. Well, um, just so it's so much cleaner. It's, uh, it's less clean than a Haneke movie. I've come to expect a, a level of, um, of of um oh, what's the word not cleanliness of focus from a mm-hmm. Haneke shot from a Haneke screenplay that this doesn't have there is there is some lingering here you know what i mean there's some weird yeah. fuzziness there are some moments where you're not 100% sure what the what the shot is actually accomplishing and i think um, the shot through the windshield of Rex in the rain, like deciding finally to drink the coffee. You know what I mean? He drew, he he digs up the coins and then he just runs in a circle, and it's pouring rain and the windshield wipers kind of swiping it off. And I remember just being like, "What the hell is what the hell is happening here?" You know what I mean? It's not like a great yeah. shot. There's a bunch of moments in this movie that like it's it's not a great shot, but after the shot finishes and the next sequence occurs. You're like, Oh, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's pretty good. And I don't think Haneke leaves that much ambiguity to what any of his shots are doing. They seem all very managed and cared for. And, 
Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fair. We could do a Michael Haneke bonus episode. I mean, it's surprising considering like you would think Michael Haneke would <clears throat> punctuate my list and he never shows up on my list. I'm going to be honest with you. I never felt dirtier in my whole life than when I saw the American Funny Games. I, I mean, Did I, you see the American Funny Games before the original? Yeah. I saw Funny Games before the American Funny Games came out and I was I have still only seen bits and pieces of the American Funny Games. Um just because like I started it and then I knew what was going to happen. I knew what was happening and I just was so mad and I just couldn't. I, um, I just, I just couldn't with it. Yeah. Me and you both. Saw- and so maybe it's unfair. It's unfair for me to have like criticized it earlier. Like I did, but I know, yeah. I know exactly what that film does. It's funny. We both, I think are have over the last two years have begun to hold a house that Jack built in like a weird esteem. You know what I mean? I, I find House at Jackville like a, an oddly compelling and uh, weirdly excellent film. And I felt more wrong watching American Funny Games than I did. I feel more wrong now thinking about American Funny Games than I do about thinking of aspects of House at Jackville. You know what I mean? And, because and that's, I don't... Uh, House at Jackville still has a bit of an imagination and a bit of a separation from the art from real life. Mm-hmm. Whereas Funny Games, despite its playfulness with film feels too real mm. with its sociopathy. Yeah. I don't, uh, yeah. But again, I was, I was very surprised that a Haneke film did not end up on list Mario. Very, very surprised. I'm surprised to a degree too. <laughs> All right, Mario, you All ready? Right. We'll be, uh, <laughs> I am, I am, as ready as I'm going to be. I'm it's funny. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna do I'm gonna say my piece, I'm gonna introduce it, and then I think I'm gonna turn it over to you. And then we'll we'll no, we'll, we'll do gotta, our discussion. You gotta, say, you gotta say you gotta say why it's on your list. Well so I think this because, is a really interesting I think Because I don't a, wanna say something and feel like a real piece of shit about it. But I don't think you will because I think this is one of those movies where you it the movie is designed to have one of those conversations. And I read Pauline Kale's review of it today, and if I was gonna feel like I did something wrong. I would have already felt like it because she essentially <laughs> said that anyone that likes this movie is a fucking moron. Um, but yeah, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we will get to my 26 in just a second. Welcome back. Uh, my movie is a movie that I have been, uh, anxious to do and, and curious to do, uh, for a long time because I knew that Mario would have strong feelings about it. Um, it is a movie that I also have strong feelings about in both directions. Um, you know, before I get, I, I feel like I have a million things to say about it. And I also feel like I haven't anything new to add to the discussion of this film. Um, but let's just do it. My number 26 is Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, 2001, a space odyssey.
Oh, it's not Brian's song by James Conn? <laughs> he gave me an old version of List. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no, I, I do like Brian's uh-huh. song. Well, geez, I don't. I like 2001, Tom. Mario, I'm not gonna I go. It. I'm not gonna go into all of the the details about the creation of 2001. I actually find podcasts and articles and everything that kind of constantly feel like they need to rehash the creation of a movie that everyone that is interested in this movie knows how it got made. Um, already knows. Uh, suffice it to say, I will start it at. Uh, my own viewing of it, which is I saw it and then I was interested in it. And then I got to the, 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 the room in beyond Jupiter. And I watched it again immediately after. And I think my, the reason it's 26 on my list and not, I don't know, four, you, you know what I mean? Five, something like that, um, is because while I think that this movie is in a lot of ways the weird, like white hot center of the of the film universe and will kind of stay there forever, I don't think it's been touched or can be replicated. Uh, in a lot of the things that it's it's doing or or trying to do, uh, and I to that point, I don't even know if anyone even one hundred percent knows what it's trying to do. I think this is one of those movies that can have, like the Bible. Yeah, I'm going right there, Mario. Like the Bible can have an infinite number of interpretations on what the fuck is happening at any given moment of this movie. It's one of the reasons I've never even researched this movie. I don't even really like Roger Ebert's great movie essay about this movie because I feel like it's too simplistic. But I feel that way, Mario. I feel all of those things. And yet there is a half hour of this movie that is unwatchable, as far as I'm concerned. After the dawn of man, until we get to the discovery, it's I I just hate it. I hate every second of it. I hate every second of that yep. Strauss docking sequence. I hate every second of the um the uh, the Haywood Floyd plot thing where they're having all the meetings and he's talking to the people in that, you know, hallway with the red chairs and he's, you know, his pen is floating around and zero gravity. And he's sitting on that plane with the aisle somehow kind of elevated above the chairs and he's having the video conferencing and he's doing all this stuff until they get to the monolith on the moon. I think that section sucks harder than I think it's a Barry Lyndon type of, of, of Kubrick filmmaking, which is inert and we'll go back to the word inert um, and soulless, totally soulless and meaningless and falls into that easily written about, uh, you know, descriptive essence of, him and Arthur C. Clarke trying to describe exactly what being in space at a certain year would would be like. Or what commercial travel to space would feel like and look like. And, you know, how different it would be from, or the same it would be from, like, life and actual. I can't take it. I, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I watched it again to do this podcast, and I fast-forwarded through it. And then when I stopped fast-forwarding through it, 
just to kind of see if there's something I missed. I fell the fuck asleep. Um, it is 26 because it exists in this weird anachronistical liminal state of appreciation and then just kind of total and utter, uh, for a period, I for a time watching this movie, I always I I want to reject it. I want to reject, I want to reject a portion of this movie. I can't, but I can't reject a portion of this movie. I, I would love for this movie to be an hour and fifty minutes instead of two hours and thirty four minutes or whatever it is. And they get rid of that whole, <laughs> they get rid of that whole Hayward Floyd. I would like to get rid of that part too. Yeah, too. they get rid of that whole Hayward Floyd section and then just skip right to. You know, maybe have him flying on 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 a, on a on a commercial jet, and then have him just go to the monolith and see it. And we can have some also Sprax Zarathustra, and then we can just kind of move on with our lives. Um, but the discovery section, the HAL nine thousand section, the Stargate section, the section in the green room is easily some of the most like profound one of the most profound film experiences I've ever had in my life. And it continues to be on small screens. I wish that I had went with a friend of the podcast, JP, uh, to see it on the big screen when it was released. I think last summer was it like a couple of theaters were just kind of like, we're showing it for whatever reason. Um, I really wanted to go then and I should have, I think it was two years ago. Maybe it was. Yeah. And time, 50th anniversary. Has, time has no meaning now, so it could have been yesterday. Um, so we're just in 2001 Space Odyssey right now. Um, I would have loved to see it, but I think it's just as effective on the small screen. Uh, there are things in I there are things in this movie that I love deeply. I think the um, the fitting of the monolith in between when the monolith begins to float, and we we, we can talk about the details as you kind of, you know, we can hash this out when the monolith begins to float through space and kind of finds its, uh, finds its position amongst those, those planets and stars and moons there. I I like to think of it as like the key to the stargate, uh, is on my TV now, just as breathtaking as I imagine it would be in theaters. There is nothing like it in cinema. There is nothing like most of this movie and all of cinema, it is uh, unique in and of itself and exists in its own kind of universe. But I am assuming that, and I actually don't think we've had a lot of conversations about your feelings about this. I feel like it's one of those things that we've kind of like danced around for like the last 10 years, like your exact feelings on, on 2001 <laughs> Space Odyssey. So very interested in this, but I think it's, I think my intense feelings for it go both ways. You know what I mean? And to that end, let's 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 do it. Let's fucking let's tackle 2001 together for like the first time. You know, really narrowly focused on this one thing. So, for me, the Jupiter mission section of this film is really perfect cinema. Oh, it's really transcendent cinema with in in both its scope of its art direction, its costume design, its technical prowess, and also its humanization of its characters, including how 
you know, a, a, a light, a light in a voice, possibly sentient, possibly non-sentient being. Um, the sequences in that portion of the film are breathtaking. The running scene on the spindle of the discovery still stands today above any other film. It is with tremendous sadness that I say that that (laughs) sequence is surrounded by garbage, just abject, soulless, antiseptic, profunctory, oftentimes droll, utterly devoid of any coherent sense of engagement. It is an hour of tremendous dramatic excellence surrounded by something I fucking want to tear my hair out with. So now when you the say Dawn of Man is is the Dawn of Man is a Boring. Oh, I love the Dawn 10 of minute Man, excruciating sequence. I love that it. Looks bad. I'm saying this right now. It is clearly filmed on a stage. Of and course. The lines, the lines of stage versus background are not at all separated. No. There's nothing there to capture me as a from a narrative perspective. There's nothing there to capture me from a thematic perspective. There's nothing there to get me next in, enthralled or enraptured by the film to come. You know, there's no wheeling, there's no stealing, there's no dealing, there's no kiss stealing, there's no limousine riding. I just had to throw a Ric Flair reference in there, sorry. Um, <laughs> there is nothing there that makes me want to keep watching the film. And to see that it's then followed by 40 minutes of what is the worst parts of Ad Astra are no, it's worse than know, Ad Astra space. Yeah. It's space station accounting. Oh Jesus. As it's it were just the worst um, is it feels as though you are pulling teeth without any sort of Novocaine so that you could get a long kiss from the prom <laughs> date you wish you could have before she smothers you with a neoclassical pillow for some profound finale that oh mario is so utterly devoid of attachment from an actual solid film that precedes it no no and no, 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 serves no narrative basis i fucking hate one hour and 30 minutes of this movie. So wait, when uh, what at what point at the end of the movie do you start hating it? Is it when they get to the room? Stargate. Do you don't like Stargate. the Stargate? Like just like like just going into the Stargate. Did you everything. always dislike the Stargate or was it like a thing that yeah. you've kind of like come to dislike as you've watched? Okay, I like the Stargate itself, but like knowing what's to come is what makes me like once you, it's really once you get to the room. Well, it's like interesting. Once he sees into it's, the room. It's so funny. I, that's why I love our podcast because the room is what got me into the movie. Like 
I was a very I was uh, I was enthralled by the discovery stuff. I was enthralled by the Stargate, but it wasn't until the room where I got into it, where like I felt like I was in the movie and in the room and kind of could could understand a little bit of what what he was he was trying to do. And I think every subsequent viewing of this movie, I, I've come a little closer to understanding a little bit of what the ultimate message of this movie is. Um, but that's, I mean, I just think that's, I think that's so funny because I, I love the Dawn of Man, regardless of how fake it is. There's things that like aren't fake, even though they're, obviously they're totally fake. Like some of the screams of those monkey humans, weird, you know, those Neanderthal, whatever things that he's created. Some of those screams are like utterly horrifying. And again, it's, it's like, I think this is a subjective thing. I'm so into this movie to by a certain point that I I kind of lose myself in that the Dawn of Man sequence. It's like the the um Haywood Floyd stuff just pulls me right the hell out and then it takes and I wonder if Kubrick knew a little bit of that about this or suspected that this was going to happen. It takes like you know uh flood or a pool running the, the around the uh, outside, you know, running the fuselage or whatever. I don't know the cylinder or whatever it is, running along that path, doing his fake punching and stuff like that. It takes them the two of those guys, um, Bowman and Pool, eating their weird mush TV dinners in front of that BBC transmission. It takes some of the initial. Uh, spacewalk sequences for me to kind of fully then reintegrate into the wildness of this movie. And after that, it's all like, I don't know. It just kind of takes off. I find that Stanley Kubrick hasn't made, like I think we've talked about every modern Kubrick movie on this podcast now, right? From Lolita to Eyes Wide Shut. And AI. Um, I don't think, I mean, you know, with 237 standing in for The Shining, he is, Kubrick has never made a more emotional sequence than when um, Dave, David is turning off Hal. You know what I mean? And he's saying, I can feel it, Dave. I can feel it. You know what I mean? Or like, Dave, David, don't. And then when he, you know, when he sings Daisy in super slow motion, when David asks him to sing it, he's like, "Oh, I learned this song." I, you know, he's like, "Could you, you know, sing it, sing it, Hal?" And Hal sings his super slow motion. There's ne- there's, um, never been. He's never made a more emotional sequence, which is so funny because he's it's a robot talking to a guy, and he's had all, you know, he's had another thirty years of filmmaking. Ahead of him, where he's made films with people talking to other people that have no emotion, he's made movies where you know, you know, whatever happens in Clockwork Orange or Barry Lyndon or The Shining or Eyes Wide Shut or Full Metal Jacket or whatever, that don't have the emotion that one shot of Hal's red eye has. You know what I mean? And it's I've watched this movie very closely a number of times. The the red eye is literally not doing anything. It is it never moves. It never shifts. It never does anything. It's the same thing. Yet my perception is always 
like reading Hal's emotions and perceiving that light inside of it to kind of pulse or to retract or to constrict like a like a like an iris or a pupil or, or a pupil like we would see later in the Stargate sequence where I think that stuff comes from. <clears throat> um, there's so much there and he's doing so little and it's mostly what he's doing and Pauline Kale criticizes this in her review. And again, this is another stellar Pauline Kale review, even though she's like super wrong in it even though she just kind of wishes that this was a Brian De Palma movie before it was Brian De Palma even existed. Um, just like not enough cool stuff happens. This is essentially her review. Um, it's about, it's about lighting. You know what I mean? You know, how many star Wars movies got made? There's uh, what is it? 11 star Wars movies got made 12 star Wars movies got made after this. If we're counting the animated version or no, I'm counting like the nine movies and then Rogue, the feature, uh, Rogue so 11, One and 11. Solo 11. It's 11. If we counted Clone Wars, it'd be 12. But we're not. We're, we're just not, counting 11. Any of the people that have made any of the live action Star Wars movie has never made a movie, has never constructed a space vehicle sequence that looks anywhere near as good as the pod sequences do in, in this film. Nowhere near. And this is in 1960, between 65 and 68. You know what I mean? It got edited on a ship as he was heading over to Los Angeles for its premiere. And they've never done anything as good as this, as convincing or as emotionally powerful. Um, Wait, anybody? Nobody's done it in in a space movie? Who has? (laughs) Oh, we're going to get there, right? You want to get there now? Do it. Yeah, Yeah. Tell me. So I forever tried to reconcile how much I loved the Jupiter sequence with this film because I felt like as a big sci-fi guy, you know, you know, I'm a big sci-fi guy. You're not a big sci-fi guy. I, I appreciate, in fact, I, I like some things, but you're right. Yeah. I'm not like a huge, I'm not a huge guy. Well, no, I, I, I often like going like <laughs> Gary Lockwood's in this and you know, he was Gary Mitchell in Star Trek, the original series. Like one of my favorite characters from like, I'm a Star Trek guy and all that. I, I have weird nerdy sci-fi mm-hmm. stuff. And so for the longest time, I tried to reconcile the fact that I really love a part of this. And I really think a part of this gets close to like the technology man uh, side. And, and it's a, a captivating, like the most hour of captivating sci-fi from a technical and even a slightly narrative standpoint that I'd seen until earlier this year. And it's the one thing I could be thankful for, for quarantine. For <laughs> Solaris. Solaris is, is everything is three hours of what I wanted sci-fi to be. And Solaris to me, like from end to end is perfect. And, and is so emotionally human and, and feels so, it has levels of, of Vonnegut to it. Um, well, don't say that. I can't. Su- I can't. Su- I can't support that, Mario. You we, in the same way that you were not a 2001 guy. I am not a Vonnegut guy. I'm never going to say like nice things about. Kurt oh Vonnegut. yeah. Okay, well that's fair. But 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 Solaris to me just hits <clears throat> every emotional human level 
of sci-fi that I needed, that I wanted 2001 to hit. And I think Solaris is just, in every way replaces 2001. Here's what I'll say. I don't think you're wrong. I actually think you're probably right. I think one of the weird things about this movie is that from a space standpoint, which I don't give a fuck about, don't care about space, don't care about the moon, Elon Musk can do whatever he wants with whatever he's doing, and I'm well, not... He's going for Mars. He's not going for the moon. Man. I'm not going to fucking care. Mar- he can go to Jupiter, and I don't give a shit. I don't care what anybody's doing in space. In the same way what that happens I don't... If he goes to, what happens if he goes to Uranus? <laughs> um, in the same way that I don't care what anyone's doing at the bottom of the ocean. Don't give a shit. There is some... I think the, simula- the difference between Solaris and this is that Solaris doesn't spend a ton of time focusing on the space. But Kubrick does focus a lot on, like, space. A lot of slow space stuff. But I think the similarity between Solaris and 2001 is that ultimately neither are about space. You know what I mean? Solaris is no, about... No, not, not all. Solaris is about relationships... I'm convinced, and I'm interested to hear what you think about this. I mean, 2001 is about the creation of, is about the creation of God. I mean, it takes, I think the, I think the Strauss, also Sprach Zarathustra, is not an accident. The, the presence of Nietzsche in this film is not an accident. It's not necessarily about a guy, one guy, who goes to like the ends of space and kind of like, is reborn as a star child. I think it's about, and something we kind of, we talked about, I think a little bit, early, and I don't remember what podcast it was. I don't remember the circumstances it was, but I, I remember us having this conversation about the story that I, me and my friend had kind of concocted about the idea that like, uh, the world was really, you know, every iteration of the world. This is not like a new thing, uh, but it's like where I have attached myself to it is that, you know, we are currently just living in, like, one iteration. And this is just, like, a multiverse thing. So I'm not even sure why I'm saying that I came up with it. It's just something that me and my friend were thinking about. This, like, this is what we're currently is living in. Is your friend in. Russ Cole? No, no, no. <laughs> Rustin Cole is my friend. I mean, like, in my heart. Again, I want to be clear to the, the listeners here. We agreed that we would not allow TV shows to be on this list because True Detective Season 1 would be in the top, like, one and a half. <laughs> True Detective season one like ruined my life, um, but but we're not there. Um, we're not doing that. I actually kind of do. Uh, we kind of came up with this idea, and we kind of I kind of believe it, and we kind of he kind of believed it, and blah blah blah. That life is really just an iteration of a, a series of our current life that we're living is just an iteration of a series of experiments for the creator of whatever this is to kind of try to get some kind of equilibrium, to kind of, to get it right, to find some kind of balance. And ultimately, I think that what this movie is exploring is the notion that man created God in the sense that we've went from apes and evolved via... And one of the things I I dislike about the Roger E. review and the Pauline Carroll review is that they take the monolith too literally. They think that the monolith gave them powers... I think the monolith, the monolith is is clearly a metaphor for man's ability to think past its own limitations. I always and, saw it as just like a, a literal stepping stone. 
Well, but and that's the thing. It's I think stone. The beauty of this the movie stone is that, that you step on to move forward. <laughs> the beauty of this movie is that we can have this conversation. And I think both of us can yeah. kind of be right in a way. Um, but that in in essence, civilization went forward to a certain point, and then the gesture. I mean, the thing that haunted me this last viewing was Dave Bowman lying in bed as an old man. We don't even really get to see him be old for very long. Uh, and he, the monolith is there finally. And he just kind of like lifts his hand up a little bit. And that's when the star child is created. And the star child rises up into space and is confronting Earth. And I hope some of our listeners are all taking mushrooms now. Because... <laughs> Because this is our most, like, psychedelic conversation ever. Um, the star child interacts with Earth, and that, I think, is the presence. And he it, it looks, it's breaking the fourth wall again, just like we were talking about with the Five Bloods. And just like we were talking about a lot with earlier in our text message conversation today. Um, I think, and then the, the star child just looks at the camera, and I think that is another, it, it's going to start over again. You know what I mean? Man... Man created the star child to kind of lord over their own, their existence. And I think that's essentially what this move is about. Is that true? I have no idea. I'm assuming you disagree with that. Pauline Kael clearly disagrees with that. Roger Ebert would 100% disagree with that. But I think I've watched this movie too many times to I've watched this movie so many times that I think my my view of it has gone totally spatial and totally into like a different realm of thinking about a film. So when Pauline Kale kind of criticizes it for just being like nerd porn, which she doesn't say, but it's essentially what she's saying, it's like, oh, you know, Stanley Kubrick and Arthur C. Clarke just kind of getting off on showing the most spacey stuff that they can show. I think well, she's, something... got, she's just got to go crack walnuts, Tom. She's got to go crack walnuts. <laughs> I think there's something else going on here. I, and, and whether or not he understands it, whether or not that's like the, the stories are true that he tried to create aliens. But so the last, you know, the, the room that we see is really just a kind of um, capitulation to the idea that he couldn't create effective, uh, visually effective aliens. Um, I don't know. I don't think that's been corroborated at all. Um, and Carl I don't, even, and I don't even really give a shit. You know what I mean? I think it's I w- whether it's aliens or not. I don't think it's a. I don't think I can't imagine the intention of this movie at any point was to say like, oh yeah, aliens. You know what did it? Aliens did it. I, I just don't believe that. No. Um... I, I take I take a very similar viewing as you in terms of I see this as a really I don't necessarily would say a nihilistic or atheistic view of it, but I think it's a very agnostic view in the sense that people are always trying to look for some sort of meaning. They're always grasping for it. There's always like that next level of which they're reaching to. There's always that next thing of which they're deifying. Mm. Um, and, and those those interpretations change. Um, has science evolves and has your knowledge evolves. That's that's more what you. That's kind of what you're saying. I think so, and I think um, 
I think the 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 more time you spend with this movie, the the less I, to that point. I think the more time you spend with this movie, the less you are content with just thinking the movie is a very explainable X, and your your thoughts kind of drift outward towards making connections to other aspects of um, a more deist outlook on life. You know what I mean? Where there's, there is inherently a God and it's maybe not necessarily a Christian God, but there is this being that we are aware of and that we are somewhat responsible for in some way or other. Um, that is just out beyond that's, you know, out beyond the infinite to, to like, you know, tie it to this, to tie it to this movie, um, just kind of watching over us and maybe, you know, dictating the nature of our existence or maybe not, but is just kind of there, you know, in the spirit. And is and, that, and I think, go ahead. I think this is where I really don't like this movie because <laughs> i i understand you know i understand everything you're saying and that's palpable and true and yet this film to me is so narratively unfocused yeah oh in i agree the end where you could where you could take you could take too many things from it you could take a very atheistic view of the sense of of man finding next level of science taking it taking it, taking it, Hal's introduced, Hal's obviously an artificial creation, but gain sentence um, realizes there is no God because its creators are also flawed, but ultimately fears for its own destruction. And, you know, it ends up being this, this weird, it could be this weird nihilistic cycloic thing of destruction and rebirth. It could end up being just ultimately a man has... Um, zoo creature or whatnot for an advanced alien species. It could be something as simple as man just blindly reaching out as he advances into the depths of space for that next possible step as like something that Carl Sagan would see it. Um, and and I, I find that narrative lack of focus frustrating because there's a lot of definitive focus in that Jupiter scene um, in terms of the way you're supposed to feel and in terms of, of the way the story's structured, but everything around it's so loose that when I then turn and look at Solaris and Solaris has a very definitive, if rigid, yeah, kind of vision of the world. Like the Solaris is like, you know, maybe we don't need to fuck with space so much. Maybe we need to more focus upon our own natural world and what we're doing to it and our own natural relationships. And that's what matters much more than you know, the, the one upsmanship of the Soviet American space race, um, which Tarkovsky is kind of trying to, is definitely making points of, um, you know, there, there's, there's, that's why I find Solaris to be the thing that upends 2001 for me is the fact that it, it has this narrative focus. It's telling you how it feels. It's still leaving open a vast amount of space for you to breathe in that. Mm -hmm. But 2001 has too much of a thing where it's just like, here's a fucking movie and you can take whatever you want from it. Well, and I think that's, and that's why it's 26 again. That's why it's 26 and not higher is that ultimately I'm not a hundred percent. I, 
find this movie so weirdly profound in a lot of ways, but don't necessarily trust its profundity. So there's a lot of movies that we're going to talk about coming up. You know, we're getting to 25, Mario. So we're getting to we're getting to the things that really mean something and kind of everything. And I think 2001 Space Odyssey is the last movie where I'm... And I think we talked about this a little bit with uh, Wings of Desire, where the movie does something at some point that kind of changes my ability to appreciate the thing as a whole. In Wings of Desire, it was the movie goes to color. And in this, it is that weird 40-minute middle scene um, that I just don't give a fucking shit about. Which proves, I think, to your point, that Stanley Kubrick is essentially saying, like, I'm making a movie about space, but I'm also not making a movie about space. And it's ultimately up to the viewer to decide what what this movie is going to do for them or not do for them. The rest of the movie does something very profound. And that one section of the movie, I think, is just, you know, typical Kubrickian, you know, I don't know, masturbation. Whatever whatever the main criticism of Barry Lyndon is, where you think you can make a whole movie based solely on candlelight. Fire hazards. Fire hazards yeah. is, the big, is the big criticism. I just imagine the studio had being like, so what's your next movie about? It's about candles? What do you mean? I don't know yet. I'm going to make a movie that I can make uh, light with just candles, and that's what the movie's going to be about. I mean, to be fair, though, no matter how much much I hate Barry Lyndon, the true 100% absolute criticism of Barry Lyndon is Ryan O'Neill's in this? Um, I'm going to be honest with you, Mario. I, when I first discovered Barry Lyndon, and this is when I was discovering the rest of Kubrick, I said, I, and one of the things I love about 2001 Space Odyssey is that there's nobody in it. Like, none of these people matter. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Excuse me. Sure, okay. <laughs> one of the most important characters from the third episode of the first season of Star uh, Trek, Star Trek is was it, yeah. so important that people thought it was going to be the Khan character in Star Trek Into Darkness and not Khan. Yeah. Okay. Check yourself, motherfucker. Okay. Um, to, <laughs> I don't even remember what we were, ta- what were we talking about. Um, oh, yeah. One of the things I like about 2001 Space Odyssey is that there's nobody in it. I rem- remember vividly the moment I saw that Ryan Reynolds is in Barry Lyndon. I was like, what? <laughs> Wait. There's who? no way this is right. Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. Ryan O'Neill. Um, not, could you imagine if Ryan Reynolds had been in Barry O'Neill, as you just said? The Barry, Barry Lyndon that you just said? But can't you imagine Stanley Kubrick also making a movie with Ryan Reynolds in it? Like, thinking it was an amazing oh, idea? Could. In the same way that Terrence Malick thought making, making a movie Barry with... Lyndon in 2020 and putting Ryan Reynolds in it. And the same way that, Bar- that Terrence Malick thought it was a good idea to make a movie with Ben Affleck in it. Um... Yeah, I I was blown away by the fact that he put Ryan O'Neill in one of his movies. I couldn't even handle it. I couldn't watch Barry Lyndon for the longest time because I knew Ryan O'Neill was in it. Have you ever talked about Love Story? Do we both hate, abjectly hate Love Story? Yeah, it's awful. I agree. Both agree. It's it's like one of the worst films 
of all time. Well, I don't really know what there is to like about it, except for the fact that it's like I'm assuming now for people that it's saw it at upon, the time, it's, it's based a nostalgia upon Tippy, It's based upon Tipper and Al Gore's love life, obviously. Did people know that at the time? No, but that's just the. You've never heard that that rumor? No. No. So next week, Tom. Number twenty fives. Number twenty five. Rendering, rendering the final stretch. It's gonna be good. I'm excited, and I'm glad that this this is gonna take. Uh, we're gonna to get to you know, we're gonna get through our 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 best of 2020 before we finish this list, which is what I always kind of wanted to do. I wanted to get three best of years in before we finished our podcast. Um, yeah, or before we finish like the essence of what the podcast is, that we can transition to whatever yeah. else it is. But um, no, it'll be good. I, I'm excited because I think all of these movies we have. Um, a lot of, uh, of of history with them of of if maybe if not like, uh, the stories behind where we how we got to them, but like in uh, a history in thinking about them, a history in 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 watching them over the years. I don't think any of the movies in our top twenty five we saw once and we're just like, oh yeah, that made a big impact that one time that I saw it. I've been watch. I've been waiting a year to watch a episode on YouTube of a channel I love that discussed my number twenty five. So there you go. I don't even know what that means. So I'm. Finally, I'm finally watch ex- it. I'm excited to hear about whatever that is. Um, but yeah, if you yeah. are uh, excited, I guess to to hear about us, you should you should watch a movie yourself. Watch your number twenty five movie. You should drink a beer. But not Artemis Fowl. Don't watch Artemis Fowl. Don't apparently. watch Artemis Fowl, folks. Don't. Even if you're a big Colin Farrell fan, who even though he is uh, he is simultaneously terrible and excellent in this movie, that's more of like a comparatively speaking thing. <laughs> Where <laughs> Colin Farrell being awful is just better than everybody else trying really hard. Um, watch, a, watch a different movie. Watch 2001 Space Odyssey. Watch... The Vanishing, watch the Five Bloods, drink a beer, and we will talk next week.